Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Marcus Ogden, former NFL player with the Jacksonville Jaguars, Baltimore Ravens, Buffalo Bills, and Tennessee Titans. You are listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy. Today's special guest is Michael Lombardi. Michael Lombardi is a former NFL executive who has worked with some of the greats of the game like Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, and Al Davis. He started his pro football career as a scout with the San Francisco 49ers in 1984. In 1987, he went on to the Cleveland Browns in the same capacity, but over the next several years, he rose up to become director of player personnel for the Browns. His career then took him to various positions with the Philadelphia Eagles, Oakland Raiders, Denver Broncos, back to the Cleveland Browns, and then the New England Patriots. After football, he went into broadcasting and now has a podcast called The GM Shuffle. In this interview, we talk about his latest book, Football Done Right, and touch on his previous book, Gridiron Genius. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about Clark Shaughnessy, someone who should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Michael and I discuss Shaughnessy in this interview. Now let's get to it and welcome our special guest. I'd like to welcome Michael Lombardi to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you today, Michael? I am great. Thank you, Ken. I'm doing wonderful. Good. Summer day here on the East Coast. You can't beat it. Yeah, I know. The weather's pretty nice. And uh, you able to get outside and enjoy the weather? Yeah, I got my door open here. It's pretty nice. I can I can hear the ocean. So everything's good. It feels like summertime around here. Uh, life must be good then. <laughs> So I'd like to start with your most recent book, uh, Football Done Right. Why did you want to write this book and focus on football history, especially its players and coaches? You know, I, I, I felt the system of getting into the Hall of Fame was becoming too politicized. I thought the, the evaluators were just strictly becoming numbers oriented, thought they missed some of the essence of the game. And I felt a lot of people we're overlooking the pillars of the league, you guys that really did a tremendous job of, of making this league what it is. You know, quarterbacks are making zillions of dollars. Nobody knows if it wasn't for Clark Shaughnessy, we might not have the quarterback position. You know, uh, coaches are making zillions of dollars. If it wasn't for Paul Brown, we might not have full-time coaches. So I think to me, it was a little bit of that. And when I was a young executive, if you wanted to call me that, I was a gopher. I used to get on the team bus, bus one, and sit behind Coach Walsh, and he'd be doodling Clark Shaughnessy plays from the single wing, and I didn't know, you know, who Clark Shaughnessy was at all. And so he made me learn about that. And and so my history, I, I've been around a lot of people in the league, from Walsh to Ernie Acorsi to Bill Belichick to Al Davis to Belichick again that really appreciated the history of the game. Now, one thing I definitely want to say about this book, it's great seeing someone of your stature take football history seriously. 
it's one of the reasons why I formed the Football Learning Academy is because, you know, I would watch NFL Network and ESPN and to them, football history started with Super Bowl one. If you're lucky <laughs> that they go back that far, I mean, they'll talk about something in a game and say, you have to go all the way until last year to see something like this again. That's historic. It drives me nuts. I mean, do you see the same thing when you're watching these broadcasts? It drives me crazy. Yeah. You know, they talk about how football just got invented, you know. I mean, if you went to the New England practice field today, and today's Thursday, they're practicing nickel and third down. They yell the star to come on the field. That's the third corner. Well, Buddy Parker invented the star terminology. You know, it's like, where did the star come from? Where did that terminology come from? And I think we don't have an appreciation of it. I think the league does a bad job. I don't want to blame the media. I don't think we as a league do a good enough job of promoting – the players and the history of our game uh, to really understand it. The, the, and it's not hard to do, right? Like the coach of the year award should be the Paul Brown award. He's the best coach. He he started coaching as the profession we know, Ken. You know, there was, everybody was part-time, you know? The combine should be named after Al Davis because no one loved the combine. Nobody was, nobody advanced scouting more than he did terms of how to look at players, judge players. So like we should pay an honor. We should honor some of those people that have done that. And all, all it takes is their name. So people ask, who is Paul Brown? You know, I mean, I, one of my most prized possessions, I have Paul Brown's autobiography signed by him. Uh, I got into the league when he was still alive, which makes me, you know, feel good about that. You know, I can remember, I can literally remember as if it were yesterday, Walsh was on the phone with them trying to trade up to get Eddie Brown. And he was picking Eddie Brown, so we picked Jerry Rice. Now you start your book talking about these coaches, what you're calling the White Oaks, um, five coaches that left a mark on the game. How would you go about selecting these five particular coaches out of all the coaches you could have selected? I, I just basically tried to trace. I just kind of did a genealogy report, essentially. Like, where did Lombardi come from? Well, okay, he came from Red Blake, you know, essentially. You know, where did Landry come from? You know, he came from through Red Blake. Where did, where did, uh, 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 you know, Clark Shaughnessy kind of started? Where did Walsh come from? Paul Brown and Shaughnessy, you know? And so Brown kind of started. He's one of the root, root people of it all. I, I didn't put Hallis in there because – even though he's won so many games, Hallis started the league. I don't think he was the branches of or the root system of coaching. So I, I wanted it to be somebody whose influence of the game was evergreen. And these guys that I put in there, there's still things that are happening that, you know, that that involve them, the lonely end. You know, when Tennessee takes their two receivers and puts them way the hell out there over there, you know, they say Josh Heupel's brilliant and innovative, but poor Red Blake was doing it back at Dartmouth, you know, <laughs> nobody cares. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, so I wanted, so that's kind of, it was like a genealogy report, essentially. I'm, I probably, you know, I, I feel like I got as many of them then. I'm sure I missed somebody who's a part of a little tree over there, but I don't feel like I missed a big tree. Yeah, I mean, I look at the five coaches that you came up with. I mean, I think you've got 
definitely a good list. I mean, whether you want to consider Shaughnessy as part of the Hallis tree or not, I mean, that's, you know, something that you can debate uh, where he really got his innovations. But yeah, I mean, the five that you came up with, one that you haven't mentioned is Sid Gilman. So um, yeah, these are all. And, and Francis Schmidt, poor Francis Schmidt. You know, I wrote a little bit about him in the book. You know, and you could write a lot more about the guy that nobody knows about, but he, you know, that he really was ahead of his time. And he was, he's the one who taught Sid how to throw the ball. Mm -hmm. You know, he was instrumental in teaching him how to throw the ball. They ran him out of Columbus because he threw the ball too damn much, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I thought Shaughnessy, I thought the reason I didn't put Hallis in is because every time Hallis needed something technically, Shaughnessy came to his rescue. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. And speaking of Clark Shaughnessy, why do you think he's not in the Hall of Fame right now? I don't think people appreciate what he did. I don't think they understand it. Nobody wants to walk in his footsteps. Nobody wants to go back and spend the time to look at it. Nobody wants to really understand where the game was and how it got advanced. It's why he's not in the Hall. It's not Howard Cosell's not in the Hall. That's why Brent Musburger's not in the hall. I mean, people just assume this league, you know, this league has been, was teetering on extinction for many years, you know? And what these guys did to keep the game afloat and to advance the game should be rewarded. Yeah, I completely agree. There are multiple times in history, especially if you look at the 20s and 40s in particular, that, you know, they almost went under, especially when you're competing against other leagues that were trying to pop up at that time. You know, they struggled. And, you know, the All-America Football Conference in the 40s, when they tried to go, they almost bankrupted the NFL. So, yeah, um, the people that, like you said, that put this game together and kept it afloat, they need to be honored. And when you talk about somebody like a Clark Shaughnessy, I know this phrase is overused these days, but change the game. He is one of the people Mm -hmm. that truly did change the game. And it's kind of baffling for me why the voters don't see that or don't care about it. I mean, I don't know what the reason is, but Shaughnessy is definitely somebody that belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for what he did for the sport. You know, it's funny. I've not heard from one since the book's been out over a month, I've not heard from one. Pro, I've heard from Rick Goslin, mm. but I've not heard from one pro football writer, you know, because they, they I don't think they want to have their minds changed. I haven't heard from anybody of that, you know, that that has read the book and said, yeah, I sent it to a bunch of them. But, you know, I think to me that they, they rather ignore it than take it on. Yeah. Rick has always been great. Um, you know, I've contacted him a lot with, cases of people for the hall of fame and he's always been amazing but yeah i get the same thing too um i put together cases for players or coaches send it to the uh the selectors and you're lucky to get a response Uh, i don't know what's going on with that but yeah well they have their minds made up you know and so and then you asked me why i wrote the book i i thought what, what I learned from my experience in the NFL was when you start a draft board, if you set the board with the wrong player as the best player, the board becomes wrong. One wrong, all wrong. And I think they've let some players in the hall that have lowered the standard of what's great 
And so now everybody has a right to get into the hall. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, I was on WIP and I only repeated what Vermeil said. I mean, for Dick Vermeil to get in before Mike Shanahan, for Dick Vermeil to get in before Shaughnessy, for Dick Vermeil to get in before Holmgren, before Marty Schottenheimer, is a little bit probably not in the right order. I'm not saying he doesn't belong, but at 52% winning percentage, you know, in one Super Bowl, that that's, and Marty Schottenheimer won 200 games. I think there's, because there's no criteria for the position for the coaches, it becomes a popularity contest. And so when you don't get your letters answered or people don't read my book, you understand why they don't, because they really don't want to engage in what's right. They want to do what they think. Yeah. And it seems to me too, that especially recently, as long as you've got a good PR campaign, then he can take somebody who's on the bubble and push them into the Hall of Fame. And is that really the way that we should be doing this? Instead of looking at the qualifications, looking at the who's got the best marketing team. Right. Yeah, you've got the nail, Ken. That's right. And I think that I wrote about that, you know, and, and I think people don't want to dig deeper to, to understand, you know, that's why I put the situations in for coaches. You know, Schottheimer won 200 games and never really had a, a blue chip quarterback, which is remarkable. Everybody yells at Belichick because he could only win with Brady. Well, how about Marty could only win one, 200 games without Brady? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to count that. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I definitely want to talk about because, you know, you bring up Shaughnessy, you bring up Dan Reeves. Uh, both of these coaches, you believe, belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but yet they're not getting a sniff. But yet you would get some of these others that are coming up. And I'm just trying to figure out why they're jumping the queue. Well, they, they, they jump the queue because of recency bias mm-hmm. and, you know, they have a really good campaign and, you know, the Super Bowl's magnified more than ever, you know? And so um, I think to me, it's that, you know, they, they've done a good job of, of, you know, I'm often reminded about in this book, I'm reminded of Lyndon Johnson. They, they're very good at swaying voters. I'm not saying they don't belong in there. My intent was to not knock anybody out of the hall, except for except for uh, George Preston Marshall. That was my only intent. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I, if you're in, you're in. But I don't understand how Tommy McDonald can get in and Sterling Sharp can't. I'm not trying to get Tommy out. I know he scored 65 times, but he was traded for a kicker. Ray Dittinger did a great job presenting him, and kudos to Ray. But Sterling Sharp, if you and I were to sit in the backyard and draft, we would draft we would draft Sterling Sharp 10 times out of 10 over Tommy McDonald. You worked for Robert Kraft, and I know his name comes up several times for the contributor category slash coach category. So should Kraft get in before Shaughnessy or Kilroy? And I'm not talking maybe specifically Kraft, but just owners in general. Should they be getting in before coaches like Shaughnessy and Kilroy? Well, Bucko, I think I understand how Bucko's not in either. He developed a grading system. He played. He was all decade team. Uh, I think the owners should have their own wing. And I think – Every owner, if he contributes something that moves the needle to the league, should get in. I think, you know, Robert Kraft's got six Super Bowls. I mean, hell, he, sh- he should get in. 
You know, I mean, Art Rooney's in, Dan Rooney's in, I think Dan Rooney's in too. You know, they're, they're going to get in when you win that much. So I, you can't argue that. I am not would never say that. But to me, I, I hate to think they take a vote. It's their league. Why, why if, if they think they an owner should go in, they should. You know, I think what I wrote about Modell was clear because you, you can't fire three of the winningest coaches of all time. Schottenheimer, Brown, and Belichick and get into the Hall of Fame. Like, you can't do that. You know, yes, you you advance the game with Monday Night Football, but you can't. Everybody wants to argue about the move. The move was financial. It wasn't personal. The, the, the firings of those three coaches means he didn't recognize what a great coach was. So how, if you can't, as an owner, if you can't recognize what a great coach was or is, how do you get in? Kraft, I mean, the, the back page of the New York Post when he hired Belichick by Ian O'Connor was, this is a disaster. I mean, it took guts to hire Bill. It took a lot of guts because the media didn't like Bill. It wasn't that Bill wasn't a good coach. If you spend 25 minutes with Bill in a room talking about football, you knew he was a good coach. But the media has an agenda with certain people. And so – that hurt him. So it took guts by Kraft. He deserves to be rewarded for those guts. But once again, the owners should have their own hall. Mm-hmm. You know, DeBartolo hired Walsh. Brilliant hire. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But he shouldn't take a vote away from somebody else. But if you never win and you're in the hall, like Billy Bidwell, I don't think you can put yourself in the Hall of Fame. One of the things that uh, you mentioned in your book, and it's one of the common themes among the greatest coaches, is that they're true students of the history of the game. They go back in time, they study plays and philosophies, uh, players, um, in order to be able to create their own unique philosophies. Now, I know you've worked with some legends, Bill Walsh, you've interacted a lot with Sid Gilman, with Belichick, Al Davis. Talk to me about each one of them and the things that you took for them in order to form your own philosophies? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, all of them were curious. I think curiosity was the driving force between all of them. All of them wanted to understand and learn. Like they just didn't want to hear their word. They wanted to understand it. That was Walsh's big thing. You know, don't steal plays. I need to know it, you know, and Warren Buffett won't buy a company if he doesn't know who, what the company does and how it's run. Walsh doesn't want to play unless it does that. And then what I started the book off with, I think all of them did this. They never worked in the NFL. They lived in the NFL. And if you're going to do this job, you got to live in the NFL. It's not a part-time thing. You can't come in and out. You can't put your toe in the water and then leave and come back two weeks later. Like it's a constant every day and they loved it and they loved it. And I think Walsh loved it. I think he regretted if he would have taken two weeks off every year, go to Cabo or somewhere and just got away from it. He probably would have kept coaching, but I think it just got on him all so hard, you know, whereas Bill Belichick, it just, he just has the capacity to handle Bob. Same thing with Al. Al never got tired of it. We're going to take a quick break, then get back to our interview with Michael Lombardi. 
If you like what you're hearing on the official Football Learning Academy podcast, make sure you check out our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find additional interviews as well as videos on the history of this great sport. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. Welcome back to our interview with Michael Lombardi. You mentioned one coach previously, and I'd like to dive a little deeper into that. So Buddy Parker, talk to me about him. You got to be happy that he's now a finalist for the Hall of Fame, but talk to me about why he belongs. Well, he belongs because we wouldn't have a nickel defense. He, we wouldn't have two-minute defense. We wouldn't have two-minute offense. We wouldn't have the middle eight without Buddy Parker. We wouldn't have some of the – what he, what Buddy Parker did was take some of Brown's theories and principles and add it to them. The definition of an entrepreneur is not come up with an idea. It's take an existing idea and make it better. And that's what Buddy Parker did. And what happened to Buddy is once he left Detroit after those two titles, he went to Pittsburgh and he didn't have success. So naturally, everybody, since his last stint wasn't great, everybody dismissed all the great things he did while he was in Detroit. And I think that finally we're recognizing that. I mean, when you come up with some of the things, these situational football things that he came up with when the league was two backs in the backfield, Lyman had a block like this. It's pretty pretty amazing that he had the ingenuity to come up with this. There wasn't three receivers in that day lined up, but he had a star. He had a nickel. You know, he understood how to play situations, and he was so far ahead of his time that I think he doesn't deserve. He doesn't. He wasn't getting enough. The poor guy's dead now. He's you know we're gonna hopefully he gets in. His family will feel honored, but he should have got in when he was when he was alive. If he was, you know, because that, that he's did a lot for this game. George Allen takes credit for the nickel, Buddy Parker. He just we just took Buddy Parker's stuff and re- repurposed it. That's all. Now you I mean, George, is in, George is in the Hall of Fame, and you know George is in there because he has a seventy percent winning percentage. He went to one Super Bowl and lost it. Now you had laid out a set of criteria for coaches and how the you know what should be considered for getting into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, without revealing everything, I want people to buy your book, but. What do you think are some of the criteria that you need for a coach to be considered for the Hall of Fame? Well, I, what I try to do is is just dismiss if you go to the Super Bowl, you get in the Hall of Fame. I, I mean, I think that's not – I mean, it's a hard achievement. Don't get me wrong. If you win a Super Bowl, it's a hard achievement. But that's a, you might have had a Hall of Fame year. You may not have had a Hall of Fame career. There's a difference, right? I think Tony Baselli's had a Hall of Fame years – I didn't think he had a Hall of Fame career because he didn't play long enough. So I think you have to separate those two. And then you have to sep- you have to concentrate on the winning percentage to the playoff ratio. Uh you've got to look at the the as the playoff as your playoff ratio maybe goes lower, like in Marty, what does your win percentage go? As does it go up? You know, if Marty had 200 wins and he was a 52% win percentage coach. You know, that's just many coached a lot of games. Maybe he he wasn't really, a, but he's got he's got a sixty percent winning percentage at two hundred games. You know, it's like a gambler. I mean, they any sports better will tell you if they if they if they're fifty seven percent accurate, they're making a ton of money. Sixty, they're making a fortune. So, I, I, I what I tried to set it up was like any club, you've got to meet these certain criteria to get in. And what I did was I took guys that were already in the Hall of Fame 
and use them as the model because it, it's not a good criteria if guys that are in the hall, if too many are in the hall that don't meet the criteria. Like Flores wouldn't have met the criteria. Vermeil wouldn't have met the criteria. They're both in the hall. So I didn't use their criteria. They're in, they stay in, God bless. But what I try to do is moving forward is, okay, say, okay, here's Holmgren's career. Here's what he accomplished. Pretty good career. Pretty good career. And so that criteria allows him to get into the conversation. So when I was a scout personnel guy, we wanted to develop a grading system. And part of the problem with developing a grading system is you want to eliminate arguing over something that draws you away from the main argument. So for example, Ken, if I go and watch you play football and you're a wide receiver and I see you catch balls pretty consistently, but your hands are, you'll have a few drops. I might say, I'm going to give you a grade of a six. That means you're inconsistent, but you overcome your inconsistencies. And then Another person might come in and watch you play wide receiver and see you drop a lot of balls that day. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a four because you're too inconsistent and I don't think you're going to overcome it. Okay. So now we're going to argue about Ken. I gave him a six. He gave him a four. What we're really arguing about isn't your hands. We're arguing about the consistency factor. So we've narrowed the argument down. And that's what criterias do is they narrow the argument down. And so that's why I wanted to be able to say, okay, here's a criteria. We're narrowing the argument down to where we can actually have a full discussion on who deserves to get in here. They, they've, they've passed the first test of getting into the conversation. How do they get into the next conversation? I, I always hear the phrase that you put 10 scouts in a room and they watch the same film. They're going to have 10 different scouting reports on that. So to me, having, you know, those sets of criteria so that you can at least be a little more consistent. And like you said, you're not arguing over things that you shouldn't be arguing over. Do the right. things you're that you're framing were... the argument. Yeah, exactly. Now I know that you put um a section in your book about personnel people and the impacts that they've had on their teams and on their game. One name I didn't see in there was Eddie Codal for the Rams. I strongly support him for the Hall of Fame. Is he somebody that you considered for inclusion in the book? You know, I did, and I didn't know enough about him to make contact. I wish I would have met you before I wrote the book, <laughs> and then I could have used that. Yeah, I would have liked to have known that. I didn't really I, – I kind of used a, uh, the approach of the people that I knew over my 40-year career, and I went back and did Jack Venisi with the help of his brother, Sam, uh, because Sam was Sam Hope was still alive. Jerry was still alive when I was doing it too. And I talked to Jerry. Uh, so, you know, I was able to dip into the fifties, but I, I, I didn't know any connection to Cole and I really didn't have any alternative. You know, it's hard with personnel guys. The reason why my two sons are coaches is because sometimes when you're in personnel, you can take credit for something that you really didn't have anything to do. With. Oh, I like that guy. I didn't like that guy. I like that guy. You know, that's one of Jack Venisi's problems, why he's not on the Packer Wall of Fame, is because he didn't have the title general manager. Well, everybody that he talked to that was in Green Bay then knows he was responsible for all those picks, not the coaches. 
and I could get that information. Whereas in, on any call, I couldn't. I wish I would have known you. Well, I mean, when you're writing your sequel, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you a tough question here. If you were the sole Hall of Fame selector, what player and what coach slash contributor are you inducting first? I'm going to take Shaughnessy and put him in first. Mm -hmm. Because we would not have the game we have today if it wasn't for him. So I'm going to take Shaughnessy and put him in. And I'm going to take Sterling Sharp and put him in. Okay. Nice choices. One of the big parts of your book, too, is you have an all-time top 100 list of players. And you broke them down into five different levels. So what are the criteria that you used in order to break them down into the, in, those individual levels? And how did you compare across positions, across eras, and across leagues? So I did it like I was setting up a draft room. You know, when you build a draft board, there's two boards. There's the vertical board at the position, and then there's the horizontal board of all the positions. And so what I first, what you first do when you build a draft board is you build the vertical board by position. And my intent of the vertical board was to not saturate it with wide receivers. Could I have put Terrell Owens in the top 100? Yeah, without a doubt, probably. But I didn't want every time I would go into a draft room, there'd be 70 receivers on the board and 15 corners, you know, like well, who's covering these guys. Right. So I wanted to have a little bit of balance in terms of team building. So I, I set it up that way. And I started like all draft boards with 150 names and went through them and whittled it down to a hundred. Well, really 99. Cause I put Kenny Washington as a hundred as a point of reference. Cause he certainly doesn't qualify as a Hall of Famer based on his play with the Rams because he was done, his career was over with at that time. But he's symbolic for breaking the color barrier in football. And so he deserves to be in the top 100 because I wanted to have a conversation about him. I mean, I think that's great that you did that because a lot of people don't know Kenny Washington's name. They don't know what he had to go through. Um, and the monumental task of breaking the color barrier in the NFL. I mean, you had some strong opposition with the owners that they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to break the color barrier. And I'm glad that you recognized him. I appreciate that. Yeah, I thought it was important. I wish I had more time to tell his whole story. I tried to do it as succinctly as I could. I think the power of the, the city of Los Angeles deserves a lot of credit in this too, because the city of Los Angeles basically told Dan Reeves that under no circumstances would the Rams play in the Coliseum unless there were black players on the Rams team. So they deserve a lot of credit. The one who deserves no credit is George Preston Marshall, because from it took him till the 60s before he would actually integrate. And yet he sits in the Hall of Fame as if he's achieved something for the league. Yeah, yeah, I'm not understanding that, but uh, yeah, and one thing too, on... they don't want to touch that. It's like OJ; they don't want to touch it. There's a lot of mea culpas going on right now um, among you know league officials that you know we should have done more and stuff like that, but you know you didn't. So um, good on Los Angeles, the city, for pushing that to make sure that they, you know, they started integrating properly with their teams and good on the all America football conference for not needing pressure to do it. I mean, you get someone like Paul Brown in there. 
He didn't care. He doesn't care what color skin you are. He doesn't care anything. He wants to know, can you play football? Can you play football my way? And that's what's important. And good on Paul Brown for doing that. And I'm glad that the city of Los Angeles was able to uh, to push that through as well. Yeah, no also, question. They deserve... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, they deserve credit for that. They don't get recognized enough for that. Yeah, and I also want to acknowledge Kenny Washington as being one of the first black quarterbacks. He wasn't brought in to be a quarterback, but he did get in and play the quarterback position. So uh, I want to be able to acknowledge that accomplishment as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you talk to anybody or read anything, not talk to anybody about his athleticism, his talent, his speed, you know, and and everybody says he was different than Jackie Robinson and the ovation he got after they played USC at the Coliseum was something that I think whom, however many people were there that day, a hundred thousand will never forget. I mean, it, it, it resonated and it's in it's documented. Yeah. And people don't know that uh, Jackie Robinson was in that backfield along with Washington at USC. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I know people are always going to quibble about the order of the top 100, you know, why mm -hmm. my favorite player is so low or why are you putting this guy so high, that type of thing. But overall, I definitely have to say it's a, a really good list, and I appreciate you taking Thank the you. time to to put that together. I think I missed Steve Van Buren. I think I should have put him in the top 100. Um, I probably regret that name more than ever. Uh, a lot of people will, will – uh, you know, argue that Sterling Sharp's not in the hall and, you know, how can he be in the top 100 or Ron Kramer? But when you study Ron Kramer's career and you study the short, what he did and the power sweep of Green Bay that was going to the strong side behind his blocking. And unfortunately, he grew Lombardi had to trade him and we Lombardi acknowledged him as one of the best players he ever coached. So those two guys probably, you know, I, I, I thought Kramer would have been Gronk had 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 he played at a different time. This is a, a what a eleven athlete varsity athlete guy in, in Michigan played basketball for the Pistons. I mean, he was really unique. Yeah, but if you were to put Steve Van Buren in, who are you going to take out? Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'd like that's to uh, move on to your previous book, Gridiron Genius. Um, in there, you talk about. Bill Walsh's philosophy on drafting receivers. Talk to me a little bit about that philosophy and do you agree with that philosophy in your own way that you would draft receivers? You know, I do. It's my life. I mean, you know, Walsh believed that you didn't fix the receiver position until the rest of the team was fixed. You know, what he didn't want was a great receiver uh, that you couldn't get the ball to because you couldn't block or a great receiver that you couldn't get the ball to because you didn't have a quarterback. He felt like you could find receivers. They're out there. And I think time has proven that's true, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you know, you, there's guys that play receiver that are that are really good. I mean, A.J. Brown here in Philadelphia was a second-round pick. He wasn't a top-three pick in the draft. Now, Walsh picked James Owens in the second round. What, what, what he was referring to was using high-value picks on that. And so I believe in it wholeheartedly because at the end of the day, no matter how much the game changes and it evolves, it still comes down to, can I block you? And can I get to the quarterback? 
football is the essence of what we did as kids in the backyard. You know, if the game was five Mississippi, people got open. If the game was three Mississippi, nobody got open. It's as simple as that. And so Walsh's philosophy about defensive linemen and building the line and being good up front, that, that's always been how I believe football should be played. One section of your book that uh, I definitely enjoyed was your pet peeves. So I want to discuss a, a couple of them with you. Um, first being throwing a check down pass in the two minute drill. Why is that oh, a bad God. idea? And why do coaches keep doing it? It's so stupid. And the announcers just think it's fine. They think this is just a great completion. You know, I mean, first of all, the, the number one rule whenever you get the ball back is how many plays do we have left? You know, how many play if, if we have the ball and there's 40 seconds to go in the game and we have two timeouts and we have the ball at midfield, you're sitting there saying to yourself, okay, we got two timeouts. We probably have eight plays left here. If we get eight plays off, right? We can't, you know, and if we waste one on a three yard gain, we basically wasted two. So by the time we get everybody back, by the time we line up, call the next play, we've wasted – now we're down to six plays as opposed to – or five plays. So either you throw the ball up the field to get to where you can get a chunk of yards because getting two yards isn't going to do us any good. It's only going to – it's what the defense wants you to do. So – but nobody understands that. They, they think a completion is still the most, oh, look, he completed a pass. And then everybody's worried about getting first downs in two minutes. Like, if we're worried about getting first downs in two minutes, then we got a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. We're not going to win anyway. Another one that you have is field goals should actually be turnovers. Talk to me about that yes. and the philosophy behind it. Okay, so a turnover is the ball gets exchanged, right? That's mm -hmm. the definition. You gave me the football. Right. And you gave me the football at a different place than where you started with the ball. OK, if you had the ball at the 42 and you threw him an interception to me and I got it at the 22, that's a turnover. OK. But if if you if I got if you threw me an interception. And I advanced the ball. OK, great. But when you miss a field goal, I get the ball six from where you kicked it, not from where you snapped it. So that the ball is in a different spot. And so you've turned the ball over. You've turned it over to me. And there has to be an accounting process for that. It just can't slide away. Like, what do we do with it? You know, like, what do you want to do with it? You got to like, okay, so the poor quarterback gets hung. All he talks about is every graph that come, graphic that comes up is how many interceptions he thrown. But when the kicker comes out, they don't talk about how many misses he has, right? Mm-hmm that that's a turnover because as a coach you're sitting there thinking right i got this 38 yard field goal if i make it i get three if i miss it i turn it over they get the ball x where like let's take the minnesota game against san francisco last week he's got a 54 yarder indoors okay the, now on third down if he fumbled, everybody would have gone berserk, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, he fumbled. Look, he turned the ball over. He misses the field goal. Nobody says anything. Yeah, he just missed the field goal. Well, you as a coach, you've got to figure out, if I miss this kick, it's a turnover. 
and I'm going to give him the ball seven yards different than if I fumbled it. Mm -hmm. So, like, why aren't we counting it? Why don't we count it? I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Last one is when the eight-man front gets too much credit. So why is it that they get too much credit? Why is it incorrect? And why did Al Davis love it so much? Well, Al loved it because he wanted every gap. He wanted to play. Al Davis wanted the middle of the field closed. And if you are going, which means there is going to be a free safety in the middle of the field. And if you want to close the middle of the field, that means you're going to have an eight-man front. So that means the safety is going to be down into the – so there's three levels of every defense, the defensive line, the linebackers, and the, the safeties, the corner safeties. So when the middle of the field's closed, that other safety has to come down and play on level two. Now that gives you an eight-man front. The problem with the eight-man front is if everybody doesn't have gap integrity, meaning they stay in their gap vertically and horizontally, because what happens is if you if you have the A gap, which is the gap next to the center, and you run up the field, then you've left the gap. Even though you say you're in your gap, you're not horizontally corrected in the gap. You're vertically in the gap, but you're not horizontally. So, the, so it has to be organized. The problem that Al had with his eight-man front was when the bootleg and the nakeds became popular, the end had to go with the quarterback. So when, when he fakes a handoff and he rolls out, the eight-man front really now is a seven-man front because nobody has the backside C-gap. The quarterback just took him out. It's the only play in football where the quarterback blocks somebody. And so even though he thought we had all the gaps covered, the, the backside runs because the ends taking the quarterback were wide open. So we really were never in an eight-man front. We're in a seven-man front. And I'm glad you brought it up, too, that it's not just the vertical gaps, it's the horizontal gaps, because you see a lot of people over pursuing and then they get out of position and then now you've exposed yourself. So the intent of being able to shove and you know block up that line is just not happening because you're either going too far in or you're dropping back too far and you're not staying horizontally within your gap. Right. And people don't realize this that to cover the game, they don't understand that. And so an eight-man front has to be choreographed. Everybody has to be choreographed with the rights. Like if you watch the Browns play, their eight-man front, they're choreographed. They're perfectly aligned. You watch some of these other teams, they're not. And so what happens is, is this displacement creates gaps. So the solution of, oh, we're going to get in three buzz Ted, it doesn't, if you don't play it right, it doesn't matter if you're an eight-man front or not. You're not going to play it the right way. So it's like there's there's nuances that have to be taught and explained to the fans that, that really aren't. They hear eight-man front. Well, why aren't we stopping the run? Well, because your gap integrity is horrible. Yeah. Um, I got to say, I love both of your books. I highly encourage people to go out and buy both of them. So Football Done Right and Gridiron Genius. Uh, definitely think people need to go out and get them. So tell people how they can go get them and also how they can learn about what you're doing now. Well, I, you can buy all my books at wherever you get your favorite uh, books online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any of those places. You can't get it here in the Ocean City Bookstore. They won't sell sports books here. So even though it's, I've written two books, they won't sell either of them. So uh, anyway, uh, so anywhere online, I'm available online on Twitter, on Instagram. 
And I do a show every day on VEASAN, which is uh, broadcasted on YouTube. It's part of the DraftKings Network. It's a gambling show that uh, Brian, Brett Musburger's uh, nephew Brian started with the Musburger family. And I've been fortunate enough to work for them for five years now. And, uh, and I do that six days a week. And uh, I write for them. And I also write The Daily Coach, which is a motivational email newsletter with the great George Ravling, another Philadelphia native who went to Villanova and was the proud owner of the Martin Luther King speech. Mm. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you having me so much. Thank you. That's all for our interview with Michael Lombardi, but wait, we're not done. For our pro football history nugget of the week, we talk about Clark Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy held various posts within the National Football League. He was head coach of the Los Angeles Rams from 1948 through 1949, then became the defensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears from 1951 through 1962. However, he will be best remembered for his contributions to the sport, both on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball. He did not invent the T-formation, that's a popular myth, but he did take it to a new level. He incorporated the three-receiver set to best utilize the skills of Elroy, Crazy Legs, Hirsch while with the Rams. With the T-formation, he put the focus on the quarterback and the passing game. On defense, he developed the 5-3-3 formation to allow outside linebackers to defend outside runs and screen passes. He also developed man coverages, created blitzes from various locations and directions, and had linebackers drop into pass coverage. All of this was to counteract the T-formation. He was a true innovator and deserves a place in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. If you want to learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.